Hey everybody, my name is Derek Kreiner. Welcome to Aletheia Church. Um, if you are new here this morning or um, you've been coming out maybe for a couple of weeks and trying to figure out, like, is this my church? I'm sorry, my child just uh, face planted. We good? Okay. It was all, those are angry tears. Those aren't her tears. Um, anyway, if, if you have <clears throat> been coming out in here and you're still trying to figure out, like, am I going to stay with Aletheia? Is this my church or not? Um, and, and this sermon is going to determine whether or not you stay. I have bad news for you. Because regardless of how, what you think of the sermon, you're going to have to come back uh, next week because I'm never preaching here again. This is my last Sunday uh, preaching at this church. Uh, my family and I in a couple of weeks are going to pack up everything that we own. All of our children, I'm told I have to take all three of them uh, and our dog. And we're going to move to Virginia um, where, we, where we came from before we came down here to start this church. Uh, it's just time for us to move on. And so um, I, I think for me personally, it's... It's a special joy that my last sermon here, and I don't know when I'm going to preach again, but my last sermon here is going to be in the Old Testament. Because if you ask uh, anyone who knows me, um, especially the, uh, the other guys that I serve with in leadership over this church, when we're talking about what we ought to teach next, um, or really if we're in the middle of a sermon series that I think is just too long and I'm getting really bored with Kevin, um, I'll just randomly suggest that we need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to pull something out of the Old Testament. Let's do, let's do Leviticus. Let's do Lamentations, uh, all the fun stuff, because um, I, I really have a special affection for the Old Testament. When, when I was coming to, um, or rather, when, when my faith was really starting to grow, and I was starting to read the scriptures and, and ask myself, what do I do with this? Um, I didn't know what to do with the Old Testament. I had no, like I looked at it and, and like a lot of people who would reject Christianity uh, for the same reason, I would say, well, that, that doesn't really seem like the same thing. Like this is, this is the old story. We're in the new story now. We have the New Testament. This is the only thing that matters. Um, and, and then somebody pointed out to me, they said, well, you know, the, the New Testament is really only a commentary on the Old Testament. It's really just an explainer guide, right? It's an it's a Old Testament for dummies. Um, you you read through the epistles especially, and and you don't see narrative. You see um, you see explanations. This is this is what you're doing. This is what it's this is how it's affecting you. But here's what the gospel means for you. It's very direct in a lot of ways. Even the parts that are I think maybe a little bit convoluted are still more direct than what you get in the Old Testament. What do you get in the Old Testament? You get narratives. You get poetry. Um, you get epic tales and long histories of, of how the nation of Israel um, came through uh, slavery and wandering in the desert and established a nation, and the nation rose and the nation fell, and the nation rose and the nation fell, and, and on and on and on until it just stops, and then you start with the Gospels. The Old Testament isn't as direct always in its explanation of, of the faith and what it means to follow God and what it means to love God and what it means for, for you to, um, to, to change your sinful ways. What it, what it offers, though, I think, is, is a different insight into the human condition and how God is ever present through that, ever faithful for his people. Um, and it, and it, it challenges you to put yourself in the stories. Put yourself into the characters that you're reading about in these histories. Who are you? When you're reading the story of David and Goliath, are, are, you, are you David? Are you standing up to your sin because God has empowered you specially? Maybe. 
Or are you the nation of Israel who's cowering in fear, who can't stand up to Goliath, and you need a savior? The Old Testament is just a better challenge, I think. Um, and, and when I would read through the Old Testament, and I would see these characters, the you know uh, Abraham and Moses, David and Solomon, um, Job, Jonah, Ruth, Esther, what I'm seeing are, are familiar challenges. There's really nothing you can read in the Old Testament that makes you go, man, I'm just not cutting it. Because every single hero you're presented with is deeply flawed and sinful. And the only reason that they succeed, the only reason that the story continues is because of the grace of God. And so take a character like Jonah. We've been looking at for the last four weeks, we've been going through this book of the Old Testament. What we see in Jonah is a man who is just gripped, helplessly trapped in bitterness and anger and hatred. And yet he's not the villain of the story. He's not set up that way, right? Like the the things going on, like Nineveh's destruction wasn't foretold because of Jonah. And he's also not the hero. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't stand up as a paragon of virtue of godliness and say, well, absolutely, I'm going to take your word, God. I'm going to take your word to Nineveh. I'm going to take it to those pagans and I'm going to, I'm going to tell them what's coming their way and give them a chance to repent because that's what I do. It's not that straightforward. So as we're looking at this story, we're finishing out this book, what do you do with the character of Jonah? How does, how does chapter four really tie everything together and, and sort of satisfy your curiosity uh, about what you ought to do and how you ought to act? Well, it doesn't, does it? It just kind of ends. Are you sure you want to be mad, Jonah? If you're mad about the plant, shouldn't I be mad about Nineveh? End scene. Like we're missing a chapter. But what I want to do this morning while we're going through these verses, I want to look at three distinct things, topics, points. Number one, I want to talk about the cause of bitterness. What brought Jonah to this point that we see in chapter four? I want to talk about the impact of his bitterness. What, what has his heart condition led him to do? How has it changed his situation? And third, I want to talk about the solution to bitterness. Again, you you read through the book straightforward, and you might not be like, there is no solution discussed. It's just this guy's a jerk and hates everybody. But it's there, I promise. And as we're talking through this, I want you to remember, because this is really important anytime you're reading anything in the scriptures, you are not above the things you see in these texts. Jonah is an extreme example of how bitterness can lead you astray, but, but he is not so much different and worse than you and I that, that we're not susceptible to the same thing, even though we have the story, right? Um, Jonah was a, a human being, and so we're all sort of susceptible to this temptation towards bitterness. And it comes out in a lot of ways. Some are extreme, some are small, but think about this for a second. How often in your life, weekly, daily, monthly, 
Is it cyclical? How often do you take a wound that someone's given you, real or imagined, and just nurse it? Not nurse yourself back to health, but, but you keep stabbing the wound and reminding yourself of how you've been wronged. Of course that other person did this. They're, they've done this to me. I've got no responsibility here. You can't think about anything except how mad you are. It happens in a moment. It happens over a season. It happens in a moment. If, if I get on 43rd driving home and somebody gets in front of me going like 30, I'm going to get a little bit bitter. I do. Like it, it happens. I get, I get angry. It happens to me every single Sunday. Um, it's awful. And I'm confessing that, but this is why I'm quitting. Um, Sometimes it can be a little bit deeper than that, right? I mean, sometimes, sometimes we are so deeply wounded by another person, whether it's another believer or not, whether it's a friend or whether it's someone who actually intended to do you harm. They're not your friend. They're not um, anything but your enemy. What do you do then? Let's talk about the cause of bitterness first. I'm not going to answer that question. Like, I just want you to think about that, okay? So... That's yours. Um, so let's talk about the cause of bitterness. Um, real quick, I'm going to recap where chapter 3 left off. Jonah goes throughout Nineveh, and this is what he says. In yet 40 days, God will destroy the city. In yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That is, I think, the most lackadaisical presentation, the, the worst plea to faith you could possibly give, right? Like, how far do you get when you walk up to somebody and you're like, you're just, you're wrong. You're so wrong, you're done. And you walk away. How many times have you done that and the person's like, oh my God, you're right. I, I want to repent. I'm done. I'm sorry. Let me, let me show you how sorry I am and my dog. Because that's what happens in Nineveh, right? They're so broken up over their sin in Nineveh um, that that's exactly what they do, though, right? Like, that's what Espy pointed out last week. He said, like, they, they even put their livestock in sackcloth and ashes because they don't want to leave any stone unturned. Like, if we're going to be destroyed, like, let's, let's not leave anything to chance. We are so sorry. We're going to make everybody repent from the king to the lowest person in all the livestock. It's insane. And how does Jonah respond? Jonah responds with what we see in... Uh, that last verse, so here's what he does, last verse, chapter 3. When God saw that they, what they did, how they turned away from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then chapter 4, verse 1 says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. This verse is a little bit weak in English because what it says in the Hebrew, if, if your, your Bible has a footnote, it probably has a little um, asterisk or a number one or something like that that tells you to look down at the bottom of the page. And what you're going to see there is what it actually says is it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And he burned with anger. God sees the repentance and relents from disaster Jonah sees repentance, and it was exceedingly evil to him. Or worse, what he's saying there, and this is possible, I'm not a grammar expert for ancient Hebrew, but he could also be referencing God's forgiveness of them. 
Either way, he's looking at something that is clearly a good thing and calling it evil. Now, anger is not in and of itself a sinful reaction. Okay, so so let me let me say that real quick. Um, Tim Keller defines anger. I can't not quote Keller. There's another one coming, I think. Uh, but just listen. You want to know a secret? Ninety percent of my sermons are Tim Keller. Um, but it's cool because we're using the same source text, so all truth is God's truth. Anyway, so Tim Keller defines anger as love in action. I think that comes out of uh, the, the meaning of marriage. Um, what he means is that if, if you see something you love, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. When something you love is threatened, you will respond with anger. If someone comes into my home, if someone is uh, walking around my family and just shoves one of my kids on the ground, it isn't loving for me to be like, no, that's all right, man. Just totally, like, I get it. I live with them. That's not a loving response. A loving response is, hey, what do you think you're doing? How dare you hurt my child? I'm going to respond with anger. That's not sinful. Your anger demonstrates your love because you're going to get angry when things you love are threatened. Anger, then, is sometimes even the correct emotional response to a situation. It was appropriate, I think, for Jonah to be angry at Assyria for their transgressions against Israel, right? Remember, Nineveh is, is um, the like, largest city in the Assyrian Empire. In fact, if I remember correctly from my research preparing for this, Nineveh was one of the largest cities in the ancient world at that time. And Assyria and Israel had a complicated past, to say the least, right? Um, Nineveh was founded by one of Noah's sons after the flood. And then at some point, they, I guess, forgot that they were kind of related to Israel. Um, but but on, on different occasions throughout their history, they have um, attacked Israel. Not long after the events of, of, of Jonah, um, they actually, they're going to sack Jerusalem and humiliate Israel humiliate them. So there's not exactly a lot of love lost, right? Like it, it, it's good maybe for, for Jonah to be angry at Assyria for this. Um, it, it's appropriate for Jonah as a prophet, as a man of God, as a Hebrew, a, a lover of Yahweh to look at their paganism, their idol worship, their false gods and say, that's wrong and I'm angry because that, that is not what God wants. And I want what God wants and it makes me angry. That's sin. But it takes more than anger to call mass repentance and conversion of your enemies evil. It takes more than anger for you to look at a good thing God has done and accuse him with his character, as we'll see in a second, evil. That's way more than anger. He's way past the point of a healthy response. This isn't the sort of reaction either that a person sort of has out of the blue, right? This is not the same thing as me getting angry at somebody going 30 on 43rd. Um, that's gone in a moment. This takes time to get to this point, to simmer and stew over your anger until your anger becomes something else. And like that great philosopher once said, hate 
Anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. And on this, I think the Bible and Yoda agree. Look at a couple of things that the Bible has to say about anger. Psalm 37.8, by the way, I'm basically only quoting the Old Testament because I can. But you can go and look at the the New Testament if you want, and you're going to find even more. Um, So Psalm 37.8 says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, than he who takes a city. It's harder to control your anger than to take what at this time would have been a fortified, heavily armed, double-walled city full of people who were going to fight back. It's easier to slay your anger, or easier to do that than slay your anger. And then Proverbs 30, 33 It says, for pressing milk produces curds. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Honestly, I I couldn't tell you. Pressing the nose produces blood. And pressing anger produces strife. Anger brings about nothing but enmity and evil when you are enslaved by it. When it is more than a healthy reaction, when it is more than the appropriate response to an evil situation, when it becomes your raison d'etre, your reason for being, the thing that you exist for is to be angry at and hate that thing that hurt you, it produces enmity and evil. And the more you feed your anger by excusing it, by, by indulging it with thoughts of how, um, how justified you are and how much you've been hurt, the more dangerous it becomes. Jonah's fed his anger for so long that it's become bitterness, which is this sort of perpetual cycle of anger and victimhood. You are angry and you feel like all of this is not your fault. This has been put upon you. You are the victim. It makes you more angry. And the more angry you become, then the more you feed back on, I've been so wronged. How could this happen to me? I'm so angry at this person. And on and on and on. And so at some point you're sucked down the hole and you become bitter. And now, I want to pause here, and I want to try to be very, very clear on something. Um, as we're talking through bitterness here and its, its symptoms and the solution, I want you to understand that when I say something like a cycle of anger and victimhood, I am not saying that you cannot objectively recognize when you have been the victim of grievous sin or malicious intent. Right? This, is, this is not the same thing as simply being a victim. Victimhood, in the definition that I'm applying here, and, and, and frankly what I see in our culture today when, when we talk about victimization and victimhood, we're, we're, we're going beyond the fact that you have been wounded. We're going into territory that says that woundedness is your identity. You are defined by the pain that's been caused you by other people. Other people are to blame for everything. You can't help it. It's all them. Victimhood is your identity. It's not that being a victim becomes toxic. Christianity does not tell you 
that you cannot be hurt, that you cannot be angry at being hurt by others. And, and, I'm, and to, be, to be very straightforward with you, I'm not, I'm not talking about when, when those, those serious, grievous offenses occur. I don't have time to get into that. It's not the sermon that I'm preaching today, but I want you to understand that if you hear me talking about um, anger and bitterness and, and, and a desire for vengeance, I am not talking about the most extreme and dangerous cases of this. Woundedness and bitterness, though, can happen at the same time. But they're not the same thing. Woundedness says, you have hurt me, and it's not healed, but I'm not defined by this. Bitterness says, I will not rest until my wounds have been avenged. Bitterness enslaves your heart and mind. Just look at what it's done to Jonah. Right? There, it's impacted him in at least three ways. Probably more, maybe even fewer, but I only think in threes, um, so bear with me. Um, here are the three things that's happened that I see. Number one, it's upended his value system. Number two, it's made him reckless. And number three, it's twisted his definition of justice. I'm going to touch on each one of these briefly. So first, it's wounded, sorry, his bitterness has wound, uh, has upended. I'm reading a word on a page, and I can't say it. Give me a second. Bitterness has upended Jonah's value system. So read with me again, Jonah 4, 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, a little bit ironic use of the term, I think. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? As I pointed out a moment ago, Jonah sees the repentance of his enemies and God's forgiveness towards them evil. Now he accuses God of, of wrongdoing, doesn't he? Like it, look at what he says. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Now, now recall that, that God's commission to Jonah was only that he should go to Nineveh and, quote, call out against them. In fact, his message to the city, when he arrived, all he said was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no expressed call to repentance. And God didn't tell Jonah, go, go tell this message to Nineveh so that they'll repent and I can forgive them. He just says, I want you to go tell them that their time is up. But Jonah knows God's character intimately. And I think in this, he might be one of the prophets with the most faith. <laughs> because he is so certain. I gave credit, by the way. That was my dad's thought. Uh, so thanks, dad. Um, he was so certain of God's character. He knew God's history with Israel. How frequently Israel had screwed up. Like, go, like, 
this, even my kids were laughing at this. We're, we're reading through um, the, 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 action, uh, the Action Bible, which is just a giant comic. Um, thank you, Espy, for the recommendation. And, and there's this section where it, it, it recounts Israel, the nation of Israel, after slavery, going through all of the wilderness. And, and, and here's the cycle of events. God miraculously acts on their behalf, and Israel is happy. They're joyous. God, we're never going to doubt you. You are the best. Thank you so much for everything that you do for us. And then, like, I don't know, a week goes by, and they start thinking to themselves, gosh, it's hot out here. Man, I am hungry. And they say to Jonah, or they say rather to Moses multiple times, did you just bring us out here to die? Weren't there any graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out in the wilderness so we could starve to death? And, and God then acts on their behalf supernaturally. He, he gives them food out of nowhere. He gives them water out of rocks. He continually defends them against their enemies. And then they say, oh, we shouldn't have doubted you. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for saving us for slavery. And then like a week later, they realize they're hot again. And they don't like the food anymore. It's too much. It's not the same thing. We don't have the melons that we had when we were in Egypt. Did you bring us out here so we could die? God's like, all right, fine. Like, I'll give you some more. Like he's patiently coming after them. And Jonah, Jonah knows this, right? And so he knows that, that when, when he takes this message, that if there's even a chance that, that Nineveh feels bad and repents, genuinely, truly repents, God's not going to destroy them. And if there's a chance that they'll repent and be forgiven, Jonah's not going to give it to them because God may value forgiveness and mercy, but Jonah doesn't. And as a prophet, you know, there's this too. As a prophet, Jonah's part of a long line of people who have served one purpose. Calling on Israel to repent. That is why they're there. They point out sin. They proclaim judgment against sin. And if you go and look at instances where a prophet is is coming before a king or speaking to the nation of Israel and saying, you've done wickedness, almost always it ends with, but if you would trust the Lord, if you would come back to the Lord, then he will forgive you and he will continue to love and care for you. But even though you're probably not going to do that, God will continue to love you and pursue you. That is the arc of the message that goes through the story arc, rather, not the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that goes throughout all of Israel's history from the lips of these prophets like Jonah. And they have, these prophets have endured persecution, ridicule, death for proclaiming this message because they have so valued, and I'm overgeneralizing, but they have so valued God's character and repentance and forgiveness, and mercy, and ultimately obedience, right? That's what prophets should value. But, but Jonah is working harder to prevent God's forgiveness than to proclaim it. He's so bent out of shape over the fact that God chose to forgive Nineveh because he knows that was the wrong thing. God, how could you? You know what they did. He's so bent out of shape over this that, that he would rather die than live in a world 
where Nineveh enjoys the same mercy he does. Really? Second, bitterness has made Jonah reckless. We've seen Jonah's bitterness lead to reckless behavior already, right? In chapter one, the storm God sends is battering the ship and everybody's freaking out. And Jonah's like, you know what? Just, just throw me in the ocean. It'll stop. You'll be fine. Just throw me in the ocean. Now, Kevin said that, that this was a moment of, of Jonah being sacrificial, of saying like he, he sort of recognized what he had done wrong. And I might be misquoting Kevin a little bit here, but if I remember correctly, he was like, this is, this is an, an example of Jonah sort of coming to his senses. I, I respectfully, I disagree. Because if you look at the arc of the, the book, even his prayer in the belly of the fish, how does he end it? These fools who pray to pagans forsake their forgiveness, but my prayer entered your holy temple. My prayer has come before you, and I will only speak thanksgiving. I can't help but read even that as him standing on his, his nationality, his pedigree, his separateness from Nineveh, and, and sort of hoping, I think, and again, I, I could very well be reaching here. Next week, Kevin could be like, that guy's an idiot. This is why we fired him. But, but I think that's, that's him sort of holding out hope that I'm going to go preach this message and I think God might still destroy them, which is why he's so bitter when it doesn't happen at the beginning of chapter four. So we've already seen him be reckless and, and say like, I, I'd rather just, just kill me so I, at least I don't have to go to Nineveh. And then what does he do here in verse five? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. A booth is like a little tent, kind of like that, um, but different. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that, he might, that he, it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Oh my gosh, Jonah, write a sad poem in your journal and then like, get over it. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And he wasn't really talking like that. Like He's, he's like, yeah I, was, yeah, I have a right to be angry. And I want to die. Just do it. The people who just heard me scream that in the other neighborhood, they probably didn't hear the rest of the sermon, and they're probably really confused right now. Um, his bitterness has driven him to leave the relative safety of newly converted Nineveh. These people who were his enemy now aren't his enemy. They're on his side now. They're on his team. He leaves them, goes out into, do we remember where Nineveh is? The desert. Sits in the desert under a, what I imagine is a poorly constructed shade. Because if he stormed out of the city, I doubt he stopped to buy stuff on the way out. And I don't think he had any with him when he was thrown up from the fish. So he's probably taken his cloak, if he even had that, and just like strung it over some rocks. And he's just laid down and is waiting. Not much of a shelter. 
that's dumb. Can I just, that's, that's reckless, right? You know, like he's, he's leaving this place where he is safe, where he could find shelter. These people are probably like next to worshiping him for, for helping them to uh, save themselves from a disaster. And he's like, screw you guys, I'm gone. And then sits in the desert and melts to death. And on top of that, remember, Nineveh repented, but Assyria as a kingdom did not. So he's left this place of relative safety, gone into the desert where he's miserably uncomfortable, where he has no protection from anyone who might come across him and be like, hey, wait a minute, aren't you one of those Jews? And just kill him. Because that seemed like a good idea. That's what you do whenever you're so consumed with bitterness. You don't think through your actions. And then again, begs God to kill him. Like how often do you think you can beg that of God? The same God who just told you to go do a thing and the thing that you thought was going to happen did, like he's clearly in charge. How many times do you think you can ask that God to kill you before he's finally like, all right, fine. He certainly has the power to do that. And, and, and Jonah is asking God to do it just in my life. Reckless. And then third and perhaps most serious, not perhaps most serious, I think this is the most serious impact of Jonah's bitterness. It's twisted his sense of justice. In verse 8, Jonah's angry that God sent the worm to kill the plant. And God asks Jonah for the second time, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, for the second time, asks God to kill him. And then God says this in verse 10. And this is how it ends. And this is where I'm going to end today. I'm just kidding. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What a gentle rebuke. Like, isn't that exactly how we like to be called out whenever we're wrong? <laughs> hey, but think about it like this. Are, are you wrong to value the plant more than you value the lives of these people and their cattle, who, by the way, I saw also asking for forgiveness? Jonah's been resisting God's will in every, nearly every step of the way in this book. And yet God doesn't show even the faintest hint of anger in his response. Why? Because he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious, when we don't deserve it. He just reasons with Jonah and invites him to see things from his perspective. The 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left, um, God's saying one of two things here. I, I, I fall more on one interpretation than the other. He's either saying, um, this is a city full of children, actual children, and you'd have me kill them? Or what I think is more likely is he's saying, this city is full of people who are spiritually ignorant. They don't know me. They don't know what I can give them. They don't know how much I love them. And you want me to just kill them? I think that's the more likely interpretation. 
That's how God sees these wicked, ruthless enemies of Israel whom Jonah wants destroyed. You've gotten mad over a plant you didn't do anything for. How can I not have compassion for a city filled with my creation? I brought them into being. They're made in my image. How can I cast them aside? God's justice just isn't what Jonah thinks it should be. He seems to think that God's justice means that he deserves God's mercy and Nineveh deserves God's wrath. And isn't that exactly how we think when we spent so much time ruminating on our anger, ruminating on that, like just thinking over and over and over about all the things that have been done wrong to us? Do we not sit there in that filth of a thought and say, I don't need to apologize. I deserve their apology. They're going to come to me and they're going to ask me to forgive them. I didn't do anything wrong. I certainly didn't do anything to deserve that. Jonah has put Nineveh in a completely separate category from himself in a way that God just doesn't. Jonah has separated himself from this city full of pagans, of his enemies. He's put them in a separate category based on the fact that they are not like him. They're not worthy of forgiveness like he is. They're not worthy of forgiveness like Israel is. Of course Israel should be forgiven. They're God's chosen people. It's nationality, it's pedigree, it's pride. Take your pick. But the only distinction God makes among people is whether or not you are his. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman. That doesn't mean that everyone is an amorphous blob before the Lord. What it means is these stupid distinctions that we lay down that, that let us say to ourselves to justify the foolishness that, that says in your heart, I am better than that person. That's sin, flat out. And that's born out of bitterness. Jonah here is, is, is really no different than the older brother in the parable, parable of the prodigal son. Right, remember the story, the, the, the younger son goes to the father and he's like, hey, you know what, I don't really need you. Just give me what's mine that I'm supposed to get when you're dead and let me just leave. I'm going to take all that. I'm going to live my own life. I am better without you. And he goes off and he spends it all and he winds up working in a pigsty, eating pig food, which isn't great. It's remarkable. They take that and turn it into bacon. Um, and, and he has this sort of realization. He's like, why am I here? Why am I not going back to my father? And he gets up and he goes back and the whole time he's on his journey, he's thinking about like, oh gosh, how am I going to ask for forgiveness? Is he, gonna just, is he going to kill me on the spot? Like, is he going to disown me? What's going to happen? And, and instead, when he gets home, the father runs to him, embraces him, and he says, my son who was lost is back. And he orders his servants to prepare a party. They're celebrating. There's no discussion of the fact that you got what you deserved. How dare you come back to me? 
He celebrates. The father celebrates. And the brother, the older brother, is out in the field working, doing what he's supposed to do, like he's always done. He comes up to the father and he goes, how dare you? I have never disobeyed you. I have always done what I'm told. I have always done right by you. And you've never thrown that kind of party for me. And refuses to enter the party. That's what Jonah's doing. How dare you, God? How dare you forgive these people when they don't deserve forgiveness, they deserve wrath? Completely missing how he himself deserves wrath. How easily do we fall into the same logical fallacy? There there are moments when we're guilty of nursing wounds, of feeding into this sense of victimhood. Maybe even more frequent are the times, though, when, when we're more concerned with vengeance than mercy. We're not necessarily bitter. We just want that person to get their just desserts and that'll be mine. And we miss the fact that we are as in need of God's mercy and forgiveness as anyone else. Gosh, I do it all the time and I don't even mean to. It's like I can't help it, right? Um, My wife and I, we've been married for 10 years We've been together for almost 13 years. Maybe I'm not really great at math, but it's been a while. It took her a little bit to decide that I was a keeper. Um, and, and, and over the course of our relationship, we've had arguments that just sort of come out of nowhere. You know, like the nothing fights where it's like, hey, I don't want the butter on the top shelf. I want it on the middle shelf. And, and also, please don't take the butter stick and just like rub it all over your skillet. Um, that just erupt. <laughs> Right, into this like ridiculous, how dare you, don't tell me what to do, and you know, blah, 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 right? She's my best friend. She's my perfect partner. I love her more than anyone else on this earth. And yet, I, I need more than a few hands to count how many times I have found myself, justified or not, so angry that I will not forgive. I will not tell you that I was wrong. I will not confess and repent of what I did because what I did is not the same as what you did. Whatever you did was first or worse or different or somehow less worthy of grace and love and mercy than what I've done. And then at some point, I, I, I even on a couple of sorry on, on a couple of occasions, there's even been this point where days or a couple of weeks have passed, and I I think back, why am I mad again? I don't remember, but I'm still mad, and I still want her to confess that she screwed up, and that's bitterness. What's the remedy? For bitterness. What do we do when we're in those moments, whether they're a, a moment or a season, where we're so consumed with anger that it leads to bitterness? What do we do? How do we fix that? One word. Therapy. I'm just kidding. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, secular psychology would tell you that the best cure for bitterness is to extend forgiveness to the person that you feel has wronged you. 
And as I was preparing for the sermon, I came across an article in Psychology Today, which is, um, I'll say this caveat because most of you are in college and you're like, well, is it peer-reviewed? It isn't. Um, it's more like an industry magazine, right? So a bunch of psychology wonks get together, put their articles out there, and nobody checks it. So, okay, just come down off your high horse. But here's what this article said. Forgiveness alone enables you to let go of grievances, grudges, rancor, and resentment. I said rancor. I think that's the monster in Star Wars. I think what I meant was rancor. I don't, somebody check me on that. It's the single most potent antidote for the venomous desire for retributive, 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 retributive justice poisoning your system. It's as though you've somehow cultivated your anger as some sort of analgesic, and rather than devoting yourself to actually healing from your hurt, you've become addicted to numbing it through a painkiller. And the irony is, your painkiller, your anger, only continues to work when you keep your wound fresh and open. The Bible largely affirms this sentiment, this idea that, that forgiveness is the cure for bitterness, that, that the only way that you can continue to implement your anger in what you foolishly think is a good idea is to keep the hurt fresh. Forgiveness is a must. It's one of the reasons we are commanded to forgive in the scriptures. It's one of the reasons that we are forbidden to seek revenge. Jesus says, if your brother asks you for forgiveness seven times, forgive him 70 times seven. There's no end to the number of times that you should extend forgiveness. You do it every time, every time. And God says repeatedly, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. This particular truth of the Bible is crucial, especially, especially when we're talking about a situation where someone has been the victim of a grievous or malicious sin. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to hold people accountable or, or that we have to accept abuse. It means that when we forgive, we're, we're demonstrating that we trust the Lord. I trust that, that this sin that's been committed against me will see the light of day. God will make it be known. God will deal with it. I don't have to pursue it for vengeance sake. But where the Bible and secular psychology disagree on this subject is why we are to forgive, why we are to find solace, in this case, in God's sovereignty rather than vengeance. Secular psychology says the reason that you're to forgive is because if you don't, your anger and your bitterness will make your pain worse and lead to poor health. So really, if you hold off on forgiving someone, you're doing yourself more harm. And, and it's better that you just forgive them so that your heart is fine. Your blood pressure goes down. Your stress decreases. Your anxiety dissipates. The Bible, on the other hand, says that the reason that you are to forgive is not what will happen to you if you don't, although that is addressed. The reason that we are to forgive is what's already happened to us. God has extended forgiveness to all of us 
through the cross of Jesus. Just as God extended forgiveness to Nineveh through Jonah. In Luke 11, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus declares himself the true and better Jonah. There's a crowd around him, and, and, and he's, they, people are always asking Jesus, prove it. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. And here's what Jesus says. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be a sign to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment, at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than he is here. All these people in Nineveh are going to come out at your judgment and they're going to say, you fool. We listened to this moron and you had Jesus. The personification of forgiveness and mercy. And you ignored it. The remedy, sorry, the, the sign that, that Jesus is referring to, by the way, it is not the fact that like I'm going to be buried for three days and then resurrect and then you're going to know that forgiveness is here because that's what Jonah did. Jonah was in the fish for three days and then he went to Nineveh and he proclaimed forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that forgiveness was extended to the worst of people. He's talking about the fact that, that he represents true, lasting, eternal forgiveness and peace. The sign of Jonah was a proclamation of peace, a chance to be forgiven. So the remedy for bitterness starts with seeing how God has extended forgiveness to you. And as it relates to your relationship with God, you weren't the victim. You were the aggressor. And when you become a recipient of his mercy, how can you extend anything less, anything less to someone who has wronged you? When I'm trapped by anger or bitterness, when, I'm, when I am fuming at my wife for something stupid and selfish and petty, keep telling myself it's all Caitlin's fault, I don't deserve this, there comes this almost supernatural moment of clarity. The Holy Spirit reminds me that I've been forgiven. Reminds me that I have no right to bear a grudge against my wife or anyone else for that matter because God has forgiven me. I can't focus on what she's done anymore. I literally can't. I can't, I can't stop wanting to reconcile. Just completely ignoring whatever offense I felt, real or imagined, and just repent to her for what I did. When you know the magnitude of God's mercy towards you, Something in your heart changes. And I think Jonah sees this in the end, right? God asks him twice, do you do well to be angry? Is it good that you're angry? Are you right to be angry, Jonah? Now, Jonah's response to this question ultimately isn't recorded. We're not like missing Jonah chapter five. Like it's, just, it's not there. But, but I think Jonah had to have finally realized that the answer to that question was no. No, I don't do well to be angry. I'm not right to nurse this wound. He realized that, that he was every bit as spiritually helpless 
as the entire city of Nineveh combined. Just as God had saved him, not by his own righteousness, by God's grace, so too had God saved Nineveh. How do I know this? Why do I think that? It's not in the Bible. Are you making it up? Well, if Jonah didn't get this, if he didn't understand the point, how do we get the story? How do we get the account of what Jonah went through? Do you think the point of this is to demonstrate that, that God was wrong? No, Jonah, Jonah shared this story. He, whether he wrote this book himself or he was like telling somebody about it when he got back to Israel, he shared this story to demonstrate his foolishness to demonstrate this hope of forgiveness. Because if God can forgive even Nineveh, God will forgive Israel. God will forgive you. And he brings the story back at a time when Israel is being prophesied against. Right? This is the time period, uh, time period for Israel where God's saying, look, if you don't, if you don't straighten up, you're going to be punished. So Jonah brings this back as a story of hope for Israel. Because even though they are obstinate, even though they don't work, they, they're not worthy of it, even though, even though they run away every chance they get, God will still forgive them. And God will forgive you. If you're trapped in bitterness, hurt and wounded, I want you to see that God loves you enough to come after you. You are more special and valuable and loved by him than the pain you're feeling right now. You may not feel that way. That may not make sense. And I can't explain it when I felt it myself. But God loves you more than you're angry with whoever has hurt you or whatever has hurt you. I want you to trust God's mercy. I want you to trust his sovereignty. If you've been wounded, he's got you. He's your portion. He's your prize. He's your shield. Even your being here today, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're in this place, if you, if you are in this mindset of, of hurt and woundedness and anger and bitterness, maybe even you being here today is God asking you, do you do well to be angry? As we enter into this time of communion and reflection next, I want to leave you with Lamentations 3, 19 through 25. It says this. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall. My soul remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord 
is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him.